0: indicators. You might not know this, but we constantly use indicators which are designed to inform us about about the state of certain things. And just to be clear, you know, these indicators... Well, they can normally be seen in the backlit icons found in the dashboards of our vehicles. That's uh, one of the most common examples uh, of an indicator. For example, uh, we all have one indicator icon in our cars that informs us when a door of the vehicle is still open. And another indicator icon alerts us when the tire pressure is low. Most vehicles have an indicator light that notifies us uh, when it's time to change the oil, and that's good. And, and then there's the dashboard indicator that looks like a little gas pump. And this, of course, reminds us that it's time to complain about Biden. And listen, we not only find indicators in the dashboards of our vehicles, but we also find indicators that alert us about what's happening uh, here in this world. As a matter of fact, you might not know this, but there are economic indicators that help us to know that a global recession is actually on the horizon. There are also environmental indicators which help us to realize that climate change is an unscientific scam. Yeah. Uh, there are media-based indicators that help us to realize that CNN is typically lying to us And then there are also political indicators that help us to see that the average American does not trust the government at all. Now, in light of these examples, we can see that, uh, you know, there are all all kinds of indicator signals that we look to everywhere. And listen, this is not only true of the indicators that help us to understand secular signs like politics and economics, uh, but this is also true of the prophetic indicators, which help us to understand God's plan for the end of time. As we make our way through the text before us today, we're going to consider several end-time indicators. This, of course, includes the end-time indicator of the temple. We'll also consider the end-time indicator of the treaty. And then thirdly and finally, we'll consider the end-time indicator of terror. Well, with this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 21. Here we find the Lord Jesus continuing to present the people with a sermon that we commonly call the Olivet Discourse. And the reason why is because this was a discourse or a teaching that Jesus presented from the Mount of Olives. Now, as you make your way to the 21st chapter of Luke's gospel account, well, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. I'll remind you, it was in our study last week when we began our study of this Olivet Discourse, and it was during that study when we considered the doctrinal deception, the global commotion, and the spiritual persecution, which will continue to increase as we draw closer and closer to the time of tribulation. Now, here in our text today... Well, we find the Lord Jesus, he's now presenting us with these three clear indicators, which are designed to provide the world with the signs of the times. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 21. I want to begin reading there at verse 20. Here Jesus declares, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her, for these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations." And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth distress of nations, with perplexity the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Here in our text today, we find the Lord Jesus. He's presenting the people with several indicators which were designed to detail the events which would lead up to the return of our Redeemer, Jesus. And while we're going to spend our time today considering these signs of Christ's second coming, I should begin by pointing out that the Lord Jesus here is assuring his disciples that those who are here at the time of his return they're going to see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Or or in other words, the second coming of Christ is going to be a visible event which will be witnessed by everyone who is here on the earth at that point in time. Now, there are those who wonder how everyone will be able to see the second coming of Christ uh, all at the same time. Some suggest, well, this is just literary hyperbole, and, and that is possible. It might be that he says everyone, but it's just everyone in the area. Others insist that, well, this just proves that we must live on a flat earth because, you know, how else could everybody see the second event of our Savior at the same time as if we could all look up and see the same event even on a flat earth? A more plausible explanation is based on the fact that the return of our Redeemer is going to take place At a time when the armies of the world will be gathered together in the valley of Megiddo, and therefore you better believe that the war correspondents from every major media outlet will be there broadcasting live footage of Christ's second coming. You see, they're going to be focused in on the battle first, and then as the second coming of Christ begins, you better believe they're going to point their cameras upward and broadcast the live footage of Christ's second coming. And now that everybody has a nice little cell phone, you know, that they can watch live, you know, TV on, well, everybody's going to see it. You better believe that everybody's going to be watching the newsfeed of Christ's second coming. I believe that this solves the problem. Well, regardless of the specific way in which the world will witness the second coming of Christ, what we can say for certain is that the Lord Jesus is going to return. And after the Israelites rebuild the temple, There in Jerusalem, that's right, the Israelites will rebuild their temple there on Mount Moriah before the return of Jesus Christ. And while I realize that, you know, the Lord Jesus makes no mention of this third temple here in the Olivet Discourse, we do find him presenting his disciples with a prophecy that indirectly implies the reconstruction of the temple. In order to prove my point, uh, let's back up. Let's take a closer look at the first indicator that the Lord here presents regarding the temple. And if you would, look with me again there at Luke chapter 21. I'll focus your attention once again at verse 20. Here Christ Jesus declares, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Now as we consider this prophetic promise, I should take a moment to remind you here that it was actually in 70 AD, that's when Roman soldiers surrounded Jerusalem and proceeded to destroy the temple of God. What this means then is that this prophecy was actually partially fulfilled when the people of God witnessed the Roman soldiers surrounding Jerusalem and and then raising Jerusalem to the ground. And and not only that, uh, but we should should also expect similar attacks against the nation of Israel as we get closer to the time of tribulation, which will then culminate in the second coming of Christ. Uh, uh, To prove my point, I would direct your attention to the 83rd Psalm. There we find a seer named Asaph, He's actually describing the day when a confederation of Israel's enemies, which include Arabs, Egyptians, Palestinians, Jordanians, Syrians, and Lebanese, they're going to attempt to take control of the land of God, or the the land that God promised, I should say, to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so this confederation of of armies, uh, they're going to gather together, and Asaph informs us that the Lord will, at that point in time, defend his chosen people at the time of this attack. And as we consider the confederation uh, that uh, Asaph describes in the 83rd Psalm, we have yet to see this specific confederation of armies gathering together against Israel. What this means then is that this prophecy hasn't yet been fulfilled. Therefore, the Psalm 83 battle is still yet future tense. And I believe that this corresponds with the prophecy in Isaiah about the destruction of Damascus. I think this is when Damascus is destroyed. And and, and then that gives way to the Ezekiel 38 prophecy about the day when the prince of Russia will lead another invasion of Israel uh, with soldiers from Turkey, Iran, and Sudan, as well as a few others. And in Ezekiel 38, we learn about the way that Israel is is going to actually expel their enemies by, uh, by the power of God. These battles are both on the, on the prophetic horizon and after both of these battles are accomplished the nation of Israel will then find themselves once again being surrounded by all the kings of the earth the situation that I'm talking about here is actually described by the psalmist in Psalm chapter 2 there we learn that the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed and then the psalmist goes on to tell us how they're going to come against Israel and then the apostle. John elaborates on this battle in Revelation chapter 16. There we learn that the demons are going to perform supernatural signs in order to lead the kings of the earth to the battle of Armageddon as they set out to destroy the nation of Israel there in the valley of Megiddo. And as we consider the prophetic warning that the Lord Jesus is presenting here in our text today, well, I believe that he's actually referring to this final battle, this battle of Armageddon. When he talks about the people seeing uh, the city of Jerusalem surrounded, I believe that he's talking about this third and final battle that we're still waiting to see. And in order to make my case, let's focus our attention once again there at verse 20. Here again in Luke 21, verse 20, the Lord Jesus declares, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. As we consider this prophetic warning about the desolation of Jerusalem, we must not fail to to consider the context that we find uh, within the the synoptic gospels that include Matthew and Mark. You see, Matthew and Mark both give us a little more context, and, and Matthew and Mark inform us that the Lord Jesus wasn't just talking about any old desolation. No, he's talking about the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of by the prophet Daniel. That being the case, we should take some time to consider the the fullness of this prophecy that Jesus is referring to, which is actually found in Daniel chapter 9. It's there where we find the angel Gabriel. He's revealing a prophetic timeline by informing us about this day when the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now, now, crystal clear, right? That just makes perfect sense. But it's here in this prophecy where we find the angel Gabriel describing the day when the prince of the people who is to come will bring an end to sacrifices and offerings. And where are sacrifices and offerings presented by the people of Israel? Well, at the temple, of course. And so there's coming a day when the prince of the people to come, which is a reference to the Antichrist, the Antichrist will show up, take control of the temple, and shut down the sacrifices and the offerings in the middle of this covenant. And according to this prophecy, then, there's this unrighteous ruler, the Antichrist, who commits what we call the abomination of desolation. That's how Jesus put it in Matthew and Mark. And and he does this as he sits in the temple of God, claiming to be God. Paul actually elaborates on this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. There we learn about this man of sin, this son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, as we consider this prophecy about Uh, The abomination of desolation, which is going to take place where? In the temple of God. Well, then it only stands to reason that the nation of Israel has to rebuild a temple there in Jerusalem. And what this means then is that the construction of a third temple there in Jerusalem would then be an indicator light, which helps us to see that we're getting closer and closer to the end of times. With that being the case, we should take a moment to consider the plans that are currently in place. You might not know this, but it was back in July of 2015 when the Temple Institute there in Israel, they released a modern three-dimensional architectural rendition of the future temple. Yeah, they've already got architectural plans. And in 2017, well, that's when the religious Jews in Israel started to get even more excited about their third temple. And why is that? Well, it's because in 2017, President Trump officially recognized Jerusalem to be the eternal capital of Israel. Yeah, it had never been recognized as this before. And they began to celebrate. And it was at this point in time when they released, you know, temple coins with Trump's face on it. And it was at this point in time when even the Sanhedrin there in Israel published this statement. And I quote them. President Trump is advancing a prophetic process that will usher in, when the time comes, the rebuilding of the third temple. That's not a a pastor talking there. That's the Jewish Sanhedrin there in Israel saying this. Yeah, they're gearing up to rebuild the third temple. And from this, we can see then that the religious Jews there in Israel, they are looking for the right time to start this construction project. It's also interesting to note that it was just two months ago, during Israel's Independence Day celebration, when Rabbi Aryeh Lipo he led a small group to the old city of Jerusalem and, and was there where they began chipping away at ancient stone in the old city in order to start creating uh, stone, uh, you know, uh, for the construction of the, of the third temple. They're chipping away at rock and and, and forming temple stones that they uh, intend to use in the construction process. Now, they realize that this is a politically complicated situation, to, uh, which is actually keeping them from building the temple at this moment uh, in time. But, but they've come to realize that this you know, doesn't have to actually stop them from actually preparing the stones. So they're now, as of two months ago, preparing stones which will be used to build the third temple. Not to mention the fact that they've already got the furniture ready. They've already made the priestly robes. They've already got the red heifer that they're going to then uh, slaughter and use the ash to, to you know, uh, cleanse the, the, the ground for the construction project. I mean, they're, they're ready to go. And they can have this entire construction project done within like seven to ten years. It's amazing to watch without debate, the end time indicator of the temple where the abomination of desolation will be committed. We're already seeing this indicator light coming on as the religious Jews prepare for this project. And not only do we see the end time indicator of the temple beginning to shine, but uh, we also uh, see the end time indicator of the treaty on the horizon. And to explain what I mean, uh, let's continue to consider the prophecy that Jesus presents here in the Olivet Discourse. If you would, let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 21. We'll back up and begin reading once again there at verse 20. Here Christ Jesus again declares, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, here in these verses, we find Christ Jesus. He's referring to the fulfillment of everything that has been written in the scriptures. In other words, the Lord was assuring his audience that these days of distress, they must come to pass uh, because all of the prophecies that we find in the scriptures must be fulfilled and without fail. What this means is that we can trust the word of God. When God says something's going to happen, you can bank on it and you better believe that it will be fulfilled. And while it's true that this prophecy about the desolation of Jerusalem was partially fulfilled back in the first century, it's also true that these prophecies won't be completely fulfilled until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That being the case, we should take a moment to ask, well, what are these times of the Gentiles? Well, with this question in mind, I should remind you that it was actually back in 70 AD when the Roman soldiers invaded Jerusalem. And it was during those days when this prophecy about the the people of Judea fleeing to the mountains, it was partially fulfilled. And, And after the nation of Israel was then led captive into the Gentile nations, that's when the times of the Gentiles began as the Romans began trampling down Jerusalem. The Roman occupation then gave way to the Byzantine era as Gentile Christians began to build churches all throughout the Holy Land. And then the Muslims decided that this land should belong to them and so they came in and conquered the land which was then followed by the invasion of Catholic Crusaders as they attempted to to retrieve this property. And then the Mamluks came in and conquered the land next followed by the Ottoman Turks. And by the time of the First World War the Ottomans sided with the German Empire and the Central Powers and as a result the British Empire Empire ended up driving them from most of this region, and this uh, took place during the dissolution phase of the Ottoman Empire. And then following the First World War, that's when the League of Nations divided the Ottoman Empire amongst all of the allied forces. And it was at that point in time when the British were granted control over Israel, which included the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And while it's true that the Israelites have been returning to the land of promise since the late 19th century... It's also true that Jerusalem hasn't been recognized as the capital of the state of Israel. That is until 2017. This entire time, the Gentiles have been trampling the city of Jerusalem. Not only that, but it's also important to realize that you know, there, the, there is currently an Islamic religious endowments organization. It's called the Islamic Waqf. They're currently the official custodian of Jerusalem's most holy sites, which include Temple Mount. Yeah, this Islamic walk is actually in charge of Temple Mount. And so while it's true that the state of Israel is largely led, you know, by the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and and the government there in Israel is mostly uh, Jewish, it's it's also true, though, that Temple Mount is still being controlled by Muslims who manage the current Islamic structures which are both on and surrounding the Temple Mount. And with that being the case, there should be no doubt that we're still in the times of the Gentiles. Even today, we are still in the times of of the Gentiles. And to further prove my point, let's take another look at the prophetic promise that Jesus presents here in Luke chapter 21. I want to focus your attention once again, beginning in the middle of verse 24. Here Jesus declares, and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now that word trampled, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of soldiers who advanced their position by setting their feet upon conquered territory. This is precisely what we've been seeing happening since the Romans invaded Jerusalem back in the first century. We've seen Gentiles trampling on the city of Jerusalem. Would that be the case? Well, it seems to me that the times of the Gentiles won't be finally fulfilled until there's some sort of creation of a covenant or a peace treaty which will then kick off the 70th week of Daniel as God turns his attention back to the chosen people of God, resulting in some level of peace there in the Middle East. And just to prove my point, it'll help you to know that when I refer to the 70th week of Daniel, I'm actually referring to the final seven-year cycle of the 77-year cycles that the angel Gabriel determined for the people of Israel. might not know this, but the first 69 seven-year cycle of Daniel, uh, those uh, those 69 seven-year cycles were completed at the time when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that brought about the completion of the first 69 seven-year cycles. And it was at that point in time when we entered into an undetermined time period, a parenthetical period of time, which has been referred to as the church age. There's a bit of a pause, if you will, between the 69th seven-year cycle and the 70th. The 70th seven-year cycle is the final seven years that we call the time of tribulation. And while it's true that the church age will conclude with the rapture, it's also true that the 70th week of Daniel will begin when the Antichrist rises up and enforces the seven-year peace treaty that's mentioned here in Daniel chapter 9. Here's how the prophet Daniel put it here beginning at verse 27. We learn that the prince of the people who is to come, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week but in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Now, again, we scratch our head at this and wonder what's, what's going on here. But listen, the Hebrew word, which is translated into our English word week, well, the Hebrew word would be better rendered sevens. Uh, this could refer to seven days, which culminates in the Sabbath. Uh, Or this same word can be used of a seven year period of time, which culminates in a seven year Shemitah, uh, which is the the year that they would uh, allow the land to rest and and that they would take a full year Sabbath. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. A seven year uh, period of time that ends with a seventh year Shemitah. And in the context of this passage, we know then that this seven year covenant, it actually kicks off the 70th week of Daniel. So the church will be raptured. And then the Antichrist will enforce a seven-year treaty, which is the 70th week of Daniel. It's also interesting to note that the word that's here rendered, covenant, can also be translated treaty. And so, and we should also notice that this ruler, this prince of the people to come, he confirms the covenant, which is to say that he enforces the treaty And in other words, the Antichrist is the one who rises up to enforce or strengthen the seven-year treaty between Israel and between her Gentile enemies. And I believe that this is the period of time when we see uh, the, the finality or the fulfillment of the times of the Gentiles. Now, with all this in mind, it's important to understand that we don't actually know who creates the treaty. It might be that the Antichrist is the one who creates the treaty. It might be that another global leader or, or, or an organization like the UN, maybe, maybe the UN is the one that creates the treaty. And, and there are many times when a treaty is created and, and then goes, uh, you know, doesn't go into effect until some point in time uh, after the date of its creation. So treaties can be created, but then set up for a certain time to start. And so that's possible that that's going to be the case with this treaty. But seeing how the Antichrist is only mentioned as the one who enforces this treaty by confirming the covenant, well, we can't say for certain if he's the one who actually creates the covenant or if he simply enforces it. Either way, what we can say for sure is this, he'll be the one to break it. He will be the one to break it. As a matter of fact, it's here again in the same passage of Daniel chapter 9. It's verse 27. Here we learn that the Antichrist shall confirm a covenant or strengthen this treaty. He's going to confirm this covenant with many for one week, which, remember, is one seven-year period of time. But in the middle of the week, in, in the middle of the sevens, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. Or in other words, he commits the abomination of desolation until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Again, we're talking about a seven-year peace treaty which corresponds to the 70th week of Daniel. And so when the angel Gabriel here informs us that the Antichrist will break this covenant in the middle of the week, what this actually means is that he breaks the treaty three and a half years after his initial enforcement at that point in time when he enters the temple of God and he commits the abomination of desolations which results in the Israelites fleeing to the mountains. Maybe to Mount Carmel which overlooks the valley of Megiddo. Maybe to Petra there are different ideas about where they're actually fleeing to. I guess time will tell. But with all this in mind there should be no doubt that this seven year treaty is most certainly an end times indicator. And while some people believe that the Antichrist will be the one to create and enforce the treaty, it's also possible that the treaty will be created by something like the United Nations and, and then enforced or strengthened by the Antichrist. And I don't know about you, but, but when, when Trump started uh, working together with Jared and they started working on, you know, the Abraham Accords and, and, and they're setting out to establish peace in the middle, I, my, my indicator starts, you know, flaring up and I'm like, oh, here we go. What's going on? Yeah, it... It got my tail wagging. It's for this reason that I'm always looking for these political leaders who are talking about establishing peace in the Middle East. And when we see world rulers rising up and and, and setting out to establish peace in the Middle East, I'm very interested. I want to know, is this the time? Now, it's possible that the church could be raptured before or after the creation of the covenant. We can't say for sure. But what we can be certain of is that there will be those who will promise to bring peace and safety to the land of promise while also preparing for an invasion. This is precisely the point that Paul was making in first Thessalonians chapter five. It's there where he declares concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord. So comes as a thief in the night for when they say peace and safety Then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. Here we find Paul informing his audience about the political leaders who rise up all with the promise of establishing peace and safety there in the land of promise. Yeah, they promise peace. They promise safety while preparing for invasion. And knowing that there will be those who promise peace and safety through a creation of a seven-year covenant... Well, those who are pushing for peace treaties there in the Middle East are simultaneously presenting us with the end-time indicator of the treaty. Now, this brings us to our third and final point because, listen, the end-time indicators not only include the construction of the temple and the promise of peace treaties there in the Middle East, but, listen, the final end-time indicator includes a time of terror which will be caused by supernatural signs. And to prove my point, we should continue to consider the, the prophecy that Jesus presents here in this Olivet Discourse, if you would, let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 21. I want to redirect your focus back to verse 25. Here, Christ Jesus declares There will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth, distress of nations, with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Here in these verses we find the Lord Jesus describing the supernatural signs which will begin to take place during the days when the wrath of God will be poured out upon this planet. These signs include atmospheric events which will impact, you know, the sun and the moon as well as the stars. And not only that, but the nations will also be distressed and bewildered with confusion as they witness the powers of the heavens being shaken for all to see. It's for this reason that Jesus tells us about the way that the hearts of humans will fail from fear as terror begins to grip their hearts. I like the way that the prophet Isaiah describes this period of time. It's actually in the 13th chapter of his book where the the prophet Isaiah declares this. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in it's going forth. And the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. As we consider this prophetic description regarding the 70th week of Daniel, we can be certain that the humans who are still here on earth their hearts will be filled with terror as they witness the terrible events which will transpire during this time of tribulation. And listen, this time of tribulation, which will begin when that seven-year treaty begins to be enforced by the Antichrist, well, it's not only going, going to include you know, incredible signs in, in the skies as, as the sun is darkened and the moon turns to blood and the constellation of the stars begin to be shaken and, At the same time, those who are here during this great tribulation will also witness a supernatural invasion of demonic entities. And to grasp the reality of this invasion, let's consider John's account, which is found in the book of Revelation. Hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. As you make your way to the sixth chapter of Revelation, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the seven-year tribulation, which begins when the Antichrist enforces the peace treaty... Uh, This includes uh, seven seals being opened. And the seventh seal will give way to seven trumpet judgments. And the seventh trumpet judgment then culminates in seven bowls of wrath. And so it's within this framework that we find uh, John uh, helping us to understand the the sixth seal being open. And we find that here in Revelation chapter 6. So look with me there beginning at verse 12 of Revelation chapter 6. Is there at verse 12 where John writes, I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Now, as I consider how these individuals will beg the mountains to fall on them, I can't help but to remember that as a kid in Arizona, you know, I grew up hiking the mountains often. We, we would often go out to the surrounding mountains and, and spend our weekends hiking. And I can assure you that there was never a time out, out, you know, hiking on these mountains that I ever looked at one of these large boulders and thought, man, I wish that thing would just drop on me right now. I, I wish that boulder would just roll over me and just crush me because I'm so afraid. No, never happened. Never happened, and I wrestled Gila monsters, and it never never happened. I was never that terrified. What level of fear would lead a person to think that it would just be better to be crushed by a mountain? This is the level of fear that will occur at the time of the sixth seal. The unrepentant sinners who are here will beg the mountains to crush them. No doubt that people will be filled with fear. And, and with that, I want to flip forward a few more chapters to see that, that this is just the beginning of this dread. If you would, let's turn to Revelation chapter 9. Here we find another, uh, another angel. This angel is sounding what is known as the fifth trumpet. And as you arrive there in Revelation chapter 9, I just want to focus your attention beginning at verse 1. Here John writes Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. Here in these verses, we find John describing this day when the earth will be invaded by this swarm of strange locusts, which will be released from some sort of bottomless pit. And and according to John here, this swarm of locusts will be given authority to torment people. Yeah, these locusts won't come and eat grass. They won't eat our crops, nothing like that. No, they're going to torment people for five months. And you might be wondering, so what locusts? No big deal, right? Well, have you seen the latest Jurassic Park? Imagine massive locusts of some sort, some sort of supernatural, you know, uh, locust tormenting humans in some sort of way that we can't even begin to explain. These aren't your garden variety cicadas. You know, these, these are some sort of massive beast from some sort of bottomless pit. We're not talking about normal locusts. And to prove my point, look with me again here at Revelation chapter 9. We'll pick up at verse 7. Here we learn that the shape of the locust was like horses, Prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lions' teeth, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions. And their stings and their tails, their power was to hurt men five months. And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon. But in Greek, he has the name Apollyon. And here in these verses, we find John helping his audience to to understand that these aren't normal locusts. These aren't just little bugs that want to eat your grass and, and, and your wheat. No, instead, this is, this is actually an invasion of supernatural beasts which will be under the control of a fallen angel named Apollyon. And while I realize that, it's difficult to imagine what, what all this means. You know, we're, we're reading the writings of a, of, a, of a believer from the first century looking forward at least 2,000 years and trying to explain what he's seeing coming out of some sort of bottomless pit. No doubt that it's going to be difficult to fully grasp what it is that he saw. And to tell you the truth, I don't want to see it. I don't want to know. I don't want to be here. Because these supernatural beasts will be given authority to hurt people for five months and they will beg to die. And yet death will evade them. And listen, this still isn't the worst of it. This unusual invasion of these bottomless pit beasts will be followed by the sixth trumpet judgment, which will result in yet another invasion of fallen angels who will be given authority to come and kill and steal and destroy. As a matter of fact, look with me here at Revelation chapter 9. We'll pick up at verse 13. Here we learn that the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet. Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, high synth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. In these verses, we find John continuing to describe the events that Jesus was referring to back in the Olivet Discourse. Remember, that's where Jesus tells us that the hearts of men will be filled with fear as they see these things coming upon the earth. As people see these things coming upon, their, upon the earth, their hearts will fail them. What are they seeing? Well, they're, they're certainly seeing these four angels, and these four angels, angels are leading a demonic, uh, an invasion of demonic horsemen, with the total number being two hundred million. Imagine that for a moment: two hundred million demonically possessed horsemen, who are given the power to kill a third of mankind. And they proceed to kill a third of mankind with three different plagues that are here listed, fire, smoke, and brimstone. Now, I don't know what the fire and the smoke and the brimstone represent, but you better believe that these three plagues will create panic amongst those who are here during the time of this invasion. To prove my point, just think back to the panic that we saw here in our country throughout the last couple of years through the COVID pandemic. I mean, this is, you know, it was bad news. Some people are still terrified. You better believe that these plagues, the fire and the smoke and the brimstone, which will claim a third, a third of mankind, will strike terror in the hearts of the people who are here. You would think that these people would turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, but they won't. As a matter of fact, it's in Revelation 9 here. Let's pick up at verse 20. Here we learn that the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. How tragic it is to realize that the unrepentant unbelievers who survived this supernatural invasion of this demonic military, they're, they're going to continue worshiping their demons. They're going to continue bowing down before their idols. They're not going to wake up and go, Oh, we've got to repent. It's time to turn to Jesus so that we can be saved. No. They will continue down this path. They will continue to engage in their thievery and in their sorceries. And the word sorceries there is actually from the Greek pharmakia, which is a reference to the worship of Satan through the use of hallucinogenic drugs like marijuana and LSD. They will continue to engage in these practices. They will continue to engage in the sins of sexual immorality as well as murder, which uh, as these things are tied together is probably a reference to ongoing abortion. They will continue with their lifestyle and they will not repent because they don't see the the need for Jesus Christ. The unrepentant unbelievers who are here during the time of tribulation will will be filled with fear. They'll They'll be terrified as they see these things coming upon the world and yet they would rather cry out to rocks to fall on top of them rather than to trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. Will continue to reject Jesus who alone can save them from the wrath of almighty God. And with that being the case, we would do well to warn the world about the terrible things that are going to happen here in this world as the wrath of God is poured out upon this planet during the time of tribulation. We would do well to warn them so that they might be saved before these things even begin. At the same time, I also want to remind you about the encouragement that Jesus presents here in the Olivet Discourse. If you would, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 21. I want to take one last look at this verse that we find here in Luke chapter 21, I should say. It's Luke 21, verse 28. Here Jesus declares, Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. When these things begin to happen, do you see these things beginning to happen? Do you see the Israelites beginning to prepare for the construction of a third temple? If so, then it's time to look up and lift up our heads. Do you see world leaders attempting to establish peace in the Middle East, promising peace and safety? If so, it's time to look up. It's time to lift up our heads. Do you see world leaders attempting to establish you know, a, a plan that uh, will bring about further plagues? Do you see the world being terrified by these plagues that are coming upon the planet? If so, then it's time to look up and lift up our heads because all this means is that our redemption draws near. There's no doubt in my mind that we're currently seeing these end time indicators lighting up. This includes the end time indicator of the temple, which can clearly be seen in the actions of those religious Jews who are already preparing to build the temple there in Jerusalem. And you might be thinking, well, that's, that's a ways off. You know, Well, they, they, can't, they can't build there on Temple Mountain." Please understand that these things can happen quick. They can happen quicker than we even imagine. They've already got all the furniture and the, and the robes. They've already got the red heifer. They've already got the, the, the design plan. They're already cutting out stones, you know, in preparation for the construction. All it takes is for, I don't know, a Psalm 83 battle to occur so that the, the surrounding enemies get pushed out, allows them to become a nation without walls. Right then and there, they have the green light to build the third temple, which, according to them, won't take too long. Yeah, they can set the stage for the abomination of desolation within the next 15 years. Not only that, but we also see the end-time indicator of the treaty rising on the horizon, which could potentially stem from the Abraham Accords that Trump helped to create back in August of 2020. They're already, you know, promising peace and safety through these Abraham Accords. And if not that one, then, you know, the UN could come along and establish something else real easy peasy. Certainly seems like the end time indicator of terror is beginning to build throughout the world, especially as, you know, a leader like Biden comes along just the other day and assures us that there's another pandemic on the way. Yep, he needs more money. another uh, another pandemic is coming and those who believe it are just terrified in light of these things there should be no doubt in our minds that we are currently watching the beginning of these end time indicators lighting up so then what time is it well I believe that uh, if we see the end time indicators lighting up then rapture has got to happen first right It's only a matter of time. With all this being the case, I encourage every Christian to embrace the instructions of our Savior that we find here in our text today. And let's do this by remembering that these end-time indicators aren't designed to fill our hearts with fear. These end-time indicators should serve as a sign that it's time for us to look up. You know, it's the, it's the losers who hang their heads in shame. It's the losers who walk off the field, you know, head down and bumming out. And that's how so many Christians walk around in the, in, in the 21st century. You know, and so many Christians walk around like, like, like we're the losers. Really? My Savior tells me to lift up my head and look up. Why? Because we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. The victory was already secured on the cross. Why should we walk around like losers when we're the winners, we're the victors? He doesn't say hang our head in shame. He says look up and lift up your head. Why? Because the day of our redemption is drawing near. That's good news. When you see the world crumbling, when you see the indicator lights shining, that should tell us the victory is near. Knowing that the rapture of the church will take place before the beginning of the tribulation, then these end time indicators should alert us to the fact that the day of our redemption draws near. And so uh, our hearts should be filled with the joy of Jesus. Jesus especially as we look forward to the finish line of faith where our Redeemer is waiting to receive us because we've placed our faith in Him. Let's pray.